I have been working at the intersection of art, design, sustainability, and global change for um, the last 20 to 25 years. Um, and I met Michael, I first met Michael when I was, while I was serving as the um, executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute, and I was there in that role for about 15 years. Um, and it was there at the Fuller Institute um, in my early days there, I think it was 2005, six, where Michael was just beginning to develop these five core principles of sustainability, which um, you know are really at the heart of the Sustainability Labs approach. And you'll hear some more about that um, a little later. And what we did at the Fuller Institute was we created a, an online forum to test these principles um, and share them with a wide range of experts and industry leaders. And then we integrated the feedback and they evolved um, uh, over the course of a couple of years. And, you know, since been widely acclaimed and adopted in many different contexts, particularly educational contexts, as a kind of breakthrough framework for understanding the dynamics of sustainability. Um, and I, last thing I'll just say is just want to make sure you all know that Michael was a very close associate with Buckminster Fuller, who, with whom he collaborated on research involving advanced structural systems and issues relating to the management of technology and the world's resources um, for the advantage of all. And I really think safe to say that, that um, the relationship with Bucky Fuller, I think, kind of set Michael's you know, direction for the course of, of, of his life. So um, we are going to uh, just have a kind of informal conversation here, but I wanted to get started by just sharing a, um, a recent video um, that explains the work of the Sustainability Lab. It's a couple of minutes long, and then we'll get started with the conversation. Our planet is in distress. Persistent, insensitive human activities now threaten every vital component of the biosphere, including the well-being of our own species. We are faced with a choice, continuous deterioration or a commitment to sustainability. Transitioning from the current state of affairs to a sustainable basis is an unprecedented challenge. There is no blueprint to guide us. We need bold experimentation with new ways of thinking and acting. This is why we established the Sustainability Laboratory, a global platform for sustainability innovations, a catalyst inspiring positive change. In our development projects, we work collaboratively with communities to bring about sustainability-related transformations. In our education initiatives, we help train future leaders to tackle the urgent sustainability issues facing the planet. And in our research projects, we foster groundbreaking innovations in technology. 
This is the Sustainability Laboratory, aiming to expand prospects and produce positive, life-affirming impacts on people and ecosystems in all parts of the world, joining with others to ensure a transition to a sustainable future. going to start with a very basic question, um, Michael. Why a lab? Um, there are many other forms of, of, uh, of engagement and intervention in the sustainability challenge. Why did you start a lab? Okay, the lab, the sustainability laboratory. Why the lab? Actually, interesting story. I, I've been working for many years as an outsider with some of the large uh, multilateral development agencies like the World Bank, uh, most of the global environmental conventions, the Global Environment Facility, United Nations Environment Program, and so on, uh, thinking for a long while that I was kind of at the, at the heart of the international efforts in this uh, regard, in regard to the transition to a sustainable way of doing things. Uh, I was very happy about that opportunity that allowed me to really learn about the international machinery. Uh, Elizabeth mentioned Bucky Fuller earlier. It's really Fuller that opened my eyes to all those issues. The term sustainability didn't exist at the time when I was a young student, and I've been pursuing it uh, uh, first with him and then uh, by myself. So. Uh, it didn't take long during that experience with the large multilateral development agencies for a very kind of a deep uh, sense of despair to uh, set in because of the huge gap between the rhetoric of sustainability and sustainable development and what I was uh, observing actually happening uh, on, on the ground. Uh, and that led to a, a, a bit of a professional crisis, if you like. I decided that it was didn't make sense to continue in the trajectory that I was on and stopped working and thinking, what next? And then I realized something very simple, that the kind of challenges that humanity faces now in the transition to what we need to do is entirely unprecedented. There's no experience. No one has an experience of managing uh, eight or nine or 10 billion people on the planet in a more or less uh, harmonious, peaceful, and certainly abundant way. So there's no cookbook. There's no, there's no recipe that we can just follow in the change that we need to bring about. And if you don't have such a, uh, a, a, a rule book to, to tell you what to do, uh, you need to experiment. Uh, and where do you experiment? You experiment in a lab. Most of those organizations that I was talking about are really not built for the kind of radical uh, innovation and experimentation that you need to do. So as I said, where do you experiment? You experiment in a lab. And what does the planet needs now? A global laboratory for sustainability innovations. And no one was doing it. No one was doing it. So why not do it? So 12 years or so, we launched that lab, obviously a very Don Quixote, uh, a kind of naive idea, but nevertheless, over this, uh, over a decade, 
that passed by, we were able to, with relatively uh, modest resources, to have some substantial input. So the idea is to create that lab that will uh, kind of base it work on sound science and creative experimentation and kind of groundbreaking transformative uh, innovations. And the focus that, that it was to create over time a portfolio of projects that will illustrate or demonstrate the application of the sustainability principles that we developed that we'll, uh, that we'll touch with a, a little later. And uh, so portfolio project that uh, illustrate the thing, development projects, real projects on the ground somewhere. And the other significant idea was to develop the lab itself as a network of activity centers around the world that map onto particular ecozones. So deserts, tropics, alpines, etc. And at the moment, we started with two such centers, one with the Blauston Institute for Desert Research of the Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel for drylands and desert areas. And they've been involved with us in the project that we'll talk about later, Project Padiatir. And another such uh, uh, center of activity was in Costa Rica with Earth University, where we are dealing with issues of sustainability in the dry and humid tropic. Now, this year, we were uh, very lucky to be able to add a couple of more significant bionomes to the, uh, uh, to the network. Uh, one is with the Royal University of Bhutan to deal with issues of uh, sustainability in, in uh, mountain, high elevation ecology, and very recently also with the Canary Islands uh, in Spain to deal with issues of island ecology. And both are, are just beginning to, uh, to develop some uh, new uh, uh, project. So to guide the lab work, we had to produce something that will make uh, us different than many others. Uh, and the, it's something that we refer today as the signature approach, if you like. And the signature approach of the lab uh, kind of uh, is built on three conceptual uh, elements. One is a, a systems-oriented design approach. We are a great believer in system thinking uh, and, and uh, understanding holistically issues that we need to deal with. Uh, so the, 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 the system framework allows us to look at issues to understand what are the key uh, elements in any issue that you try to deal with, and also understand the interaction, the relationship, the interaction, the interdependencies of all these elements, which is absolutely key. I don't think you can deal with a complex issue that we are facing in the world today without understanding complexity, without understanding uh, those interactions. And also those interactions, of course, give you or, or help you identify the leverage points uh, the leverage points that if you are know how to, if you are skillful in dealing with, these are basically the leverage for uh, bringing about change. So the other element, which is very interesting, is a, is a kind of pioneering uh, theory of change and understanding of evolutionary processes, which is based on actually another simple idea, uh, a distinction between two kinds of change, a first order change, where you bring changes in a system while the system still stays the same, or second order change where you bring transformation that actually bring about a complete transformation of the system itself. 
And we like to, in our projects and educational program, we like to create those kinds of second order transformation as I'm trying to uh, indicate in this uh, sequence of slides here, where you see the duck swimming on that pond of water on the left side uh, is swimming in a place that only eight years ago looked like the pictures on the right. And today it looks like the uh, pictures on the top. And we try to bring this kind of concept that I was talking about, that signature approach and the issue of uh, transformative change to all the picture, all the uh, projects that we do, as well as the uh, educational programs that we have in the lab. Uh, you alluded to it just now, but you have mentioned in the past, you know, that that another driving reason to create the lab is was your insight that the the term sustainability itself is has lost its meaning, and that if you're going to um, you know, create a lab for innovation around sustainability, there's a need to, um, in some ways, sort of reclaim the term. Can, can you, can you talk about that a little, a little bit? I, you know, I know you, ha you have, you spent a lot of time developing a very rigorous definition of sustainability, just toward that end of, of kind of reclaiming what it actually means, or perhaps defining it anew. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? I, I think it's actually very important to do so because the, the term, as everybody on, on the audience obviously uh, uh, might know, has really been so overused and misused and abused that, as you said, uh, Elizabeth, it's all but uh, lost its, uh, it, its meaning. Uh, it's used for anything now. I think it, be, it became the cliche of our time uh, almost to the point that if you don't use the term with whatever you're dealing with, you're not doing something right. So you, you'll find it used in ways that may be grammatically correct because they indicate continuation over time, but they have nothing to do with the key issues that are behind it, which has to do with the adverse impact of human activities on the planet uh, as a whole. So examples, for example, you find financial institutions talked about uh, 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 sustainable financing. And you, you think, oh, my God, they are really financing sustainability kind of effort, effort towards sustainability. But that's not the case. Sustainable financing really uh, 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 relates to the question of whether loans that are given out will be repaid. Uh, in business school, you find a lot of talk about uh, corporate sustainability, basically asking whether any kind of a business entity or corporation uh, can secure a continuous flow of profits and so on. Some of the things are absurd. I recently saw an ad of some accountant who was selling services uh, 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 and, and builds them as sustainable planning of uh, your retirement, and so on. Uh, there's one example that I always like to use in a, in a yoga class that I attended some time ago. The young lady who was doing the class was talking about sustainable asanas, really indicating whether we can keep the, the uh, particular asana over time. So uh, all of those are incredibly are incorrect. Even in political circles, you start talking, is the foreign policy uh, that we are trying out sustainable and, and so on. So what, 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 what does it mean to look at it 
in, in, in a more rigorous way. When you think about the term, you will see that it has to do with a particular kind of interaction uh, between population and carrying capacity of an environment. Whenever you deal with a system view of things, you need to understand what are the key variables that are involved and how they interact. So in the context of sustainability, the key major, major variable are population <coughs> and carrying capacity. A population can be any, can be amoeba in a petri dish or, or, or wildebeest in the savanna or humans on the planet. Uh, carrying capacity refers to the notion of what kind of activity, what kind of population uh, in terms of scope and intensity and, and so forth, a particular environment can support. Support in the sense of, uh, 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 of uh, food, simple thing like food, and absorptions of uh, byproduct. So this interaction is absolutely key if you, ever, if, if you want to understand and talk about sustainability. And this interaction has a particular structure. It's a circular structure. It's not a linear uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, situation. In this circular things, population and carrying capacity are impacting one another. Obviously, an environment, a particular environment, particular carrying capacity defines what population is possible in the first place. And the population has a way of modifying its environment. The whole, actually, the whole history of the biosphere is a history of progressive modification uh, uh, of the biosphere by organisms. Uh, you know that um, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of years ago, the composition of gases in the atmosphere, for example, uh, could not support the kind of life that you, we know today. And it required uh, all these eons of work by microorganisms, fungi, and so forth to modify some of the major components in order to make those possible. Uh, now, when you look at this particular dynamics in a, in a kind of higher resolution level, which is a typical kind of system diagram, if you like, don't worry about if it looks uh, a little complex. What I want to emphasize here is that uh, connection between the population and the carrying capacity. And obviously population uh, dynamics is a very complex system in, in itself. We don't completely understand it yet. It depends on things like growth rates and fertility rate, birth rate, death rate, all kinds of other uh, 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 variables that are not understood completely. Uh, the environment, as we said, had an impact on the population and the population uh, kind of impacts the environment through its activity. Uh, there is an interesting way in which technology uh, can actually modify and expand uh, carrying capacity, but just keep that in mind and we don't have to go after it. The interesting thing is, no matter how complex and how myriad the activity itself is, uh, it actually impacts the carrying capacity, relates to the carrying capacity through two major channels. One is the channel of uh, consuming resources, the, the, any population basically converts elements of the environment into itself through feeding, through whatever. And the other channel is the channel of generation of byproduct. Every activity, this is basic physics, generates some byproduct. There can be emission, heat, whatever. And the environment has to be able to absorb uh, those things and uh, uh, deal with them. 
So from that view, from the kind of ideas that I, I mentioned in the last few minutes, we derive a, a, a definition of sustainability that says sustainability is a dynamic equilibrium. It means dynamic in the sense that it, uh, it's not something that you arrive at once and stay forever. It's not a static condition. It modifies with time and with the kind of condition that we, we talked about. A dynamic equilibrium in the process of interaction between a population and the caring capacity of its environment, such that the population develops to express its full potential without producing irreversible adverse effects on the carrying capacity of the environment upon which it depends. So you can see the emphasis here is in that equilibrium in that interaction between those two key variables, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, population and the carrying capacity uh, itself. So it's this equilibrium that is obviously out of, uh, I'll just tell you, out of tilt. Uh, and it's out of kilt, why? Because we are consuming resources way beyond regenerate, reg, regeneration capacity of the planet. This is true for the rainforest, for fisheries, for many other, even, even for non-living entities. Uh, we are consuming things beyond the ability of the planet to uh, regenerate. And of course, we are uh, generating byproducts whether they are emissions or things like this, the plastics everywhere, way beyond the, the ability of the sinks in the environment to uh, neutralize, if you like. And this is why we are out of equilibrium. This is why uh, uh, being out of equilibrium is an unsustainable way. And this being out of equilibrium manifests itself in all those things that we see like climate change and also biodiversity and all the other familiar things which erroneously we like to call environmental problems. These are not environmental problems, these are symptoms of a system that is out of balance, a system that is uh, diseased if you like, and those are signs of stress of that kind of disease which is a very interesting way to look at it because it says it's not the, the, the uh, rise of temperature that is the problem, like in climate change, but what's behind it, what causes it? This is what we need to focus on. And unfortunately, the tendency is to look at those things in a very superficial way and, and really not penetrate into the deeper uh, questions that are uh, behind it. So the, you just talked about you know, the, the equilibrium underlying sustainability or the necessity for equilibrium. Is that what you mean by sustainability as a system state? In most places, the, the prevailing way of looking at, uh, uh, at, at, at sustainability is looking at it as a, as a, as a goal. Uh, for example, the United Nations Millennium Sustainable Development Goals. What are goals that are wishful things? So the, the millennium goals are basically a wishful list of things which are nice to have. Everybody has education, no poverty, uh, all women uh, get to school, uh, a number of other things like this. But as a wish list, it's not a system, it's not a systemic way of thinking. It's a, it's a linear list 
of items that are not related to each other. There's no way to understand how they're related to each other. And there's another thing which is even worse. You can uh, think about the situation in which each one of the 17 or whatever is the number of those goals is, is achieved uh, by 2030, which probably they will not anyway. But if we were to achieve them under the current way of doing things, with the current economic systems, with the current production system, with the current concept of economics, and so forth, we will actually end up in a much deeper um, sustainability hole, so to speak. So how do you have to understand it other than uh, uh, goals? It's a very interesting thing that relates to some of the uh, uh, really profound insights from system thinking and cybernetics again, and that is that uh, it's really due to Norbert Winner and his colleagues at MIT in the 40s. They came up with that idea that every observable output of a system, output being behavior, every observable behavior of any system depends on its internal structure. You, you can think about it as a black box, like a human being. You really don't know anything about him or an economy or, or whatever. You only observe the results. But those results are produced by an internal structure. And if you look at sustainability in that way, it means that it's not a question of a goal, something a wishful thing to have and not know how to do it, but to understand that the current way of things, the current unsustainable reality, is a result of an underlying system. All the structures and mechanisms and what I mean by those are the very culture, the way the economy uh, work, the way we govern things. All those things interact in some very interesting way. So the point is that the current unsustainable trajectory is driven by all those underlying structure that, um, that uh, uh, kind of underlie our industrial uh, uh, civilization. And when you look at those, this is a very complex situation. You've got things like the structure of the economy, the structure of governance, the priorities and use of technology, the financial markets, um, the accounting system, what do we count, uh, the, the mental models, how we look at reality, the whole culture, uh, the educational system, all of those are tied and interact in a particular way that continuously reinforce, mutually reinforce those, so the educational system keeps producing the kind of corporate leaders that are no, that are, that are answerable to economic framework and so on and so on, uh, that is really taking, it put us uh, out of uh, a kill. And what it means is that the change is at the essence. And I'm going back here to that notion of second order change. Uh, most uh, sustainability related uh, efforts unfortunately, are still trying to deal with a major restructuring uh, by tinkering at the margin as though they were a first-order thing. So that the system itself remains the same. You can do advocacy, you can go to Glasgow and hear a lot of speeches, but meanwhile, the big engines still are not responding. And the oil and gas industry continues, the accounting system continues the way it is, uh, the way decisions are made, uh, uh, continuing the way it is, all the issues of democracy versus not, all of those kind of things stay the same. So obviously, one of the things that is very important is to begin to look at the, uh, at the transition 
to a sustainable way of doing things as a second-order change and understanding that that second-order change require a complete rewiring, re-engineering of that complex system that I kind of tried to uh, allude to earlier by showing some of those uh, relationships that are in place. Are the, the sustainability principles that you've developed a, a roadmap for how to, how to um, bring about second order change? You know, it's that, that, that slide you just showed of the system of, <laughs> of the current state is pretty depressing, you know, and, and overwhelming. So what the, the, the sustainability principles are what, you know, what, well, how, how are they envisioned to contribute to shifting in the way that you've just outlined we need to okay. shift? So uh, I, I, unfortunately, I don't think we'll have the time to go very deep into the, the, the more theoretical aspect of their principles, but I, I would like to say a few things uh, about, it, uh, about them. First of all, why, why, uh, uh, why principles? Uh, if you want to fly, go flying and construct a vehicle to take you flying, you better understand the principles of aerodynamics. This incidentally is the Goose Albatross that uh, was the first human propelled uh, aircraft that flew from Dover to Calais, if you remember in the, in the 70s or early 80s. Uh, it was a remarkable feat. Anyway, the, whoever, the, the person who designed it, Paul McCready, who was a genius aeronautic engineer, uh, obviously need, in order to accomplish this, this is basically bicycles with wings, if you like. Uh, in order to accomplish this, he had to have a very deep understanding, uh, more than theoretical understanding, of the principles of aerodynamic. Otherwise, you end up like uh, Icarus and Daedalus. So in the same way, if we are serious about establishing the concept of sustainability as an organizing uh, principle on the planet, uh, we need to understand what are the uh, principles that you cannot violate. Uh, or, or if you violate them, you can call it whatever you want, but it's not that. So what, how, how to talk about principles? So the, 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 remember the, uh, the vector of activities of, uh, by which in that notion of the equilibrium between a population and the carrying capacity, uh, that vector really uh, has many dimensions to it. Uh, one obvious dimension is the metabolic dimension that deals basically with energy and, and matter, uh, the metabolic exchange with an environment. Uh, but there are many others, the whole cultural uh, aspect that we talked about before, the whole economic uh, dimension, the whole way society organizes itself, the value system that we have, all of those have a, a very important impact on that total equilibrium. So I found it uh, both reasonable and, uh, and, and uh, powerful to cluster all those issues, all those factors uh, in five different domains, if you like. The first is the material domain that basically uh, deals with the issues of, uh, of uh, regulating the flows of energy and matter that underlies existence. This is where technology comes in, if you like, uh, how we produce energy, how we produce food, how all this stuff is being uh, manipulated and not manipulated, controlled, regulated. Obviously, a lot of that component 
is not going in the right way uh, today. The, the other is the economic domains, uh, where the economic domains really deals with the way that we define wealth, the way we define wealth, the way we create wealth, and the way we manage wealth. And obviously, uh, 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 the, the thing to do about the, to, take, to say about the material domain is that our current industrial civilization is incredibly entropic, very wasteful and destructive. Uh, at the same time, the, the economic accounting that we are using uh, to guide the economy is giving us a very distorted picture of what is going on because it leaves out what economists call externalities. It doesn't take into account the, the, the adverse impacts of things, for example, climate change, impacts of climate change. It doesn't take into account the cost of depleting resources. So it gives us a very uh, distorted picture of uh, what we are doing. Uh, the domain of life that we call here uh, is the, it, it kind of provides the basic for appropriate behavior in the biosphere. Uh, we are part of a very complex, beautiful, rich uh, uh, fabric of life. And there are many other millions of species behind us. And we are not really good neighbors to the others, as you very well understand, I'm sure, with the, you're seeing the rate of decimation of other species and uh, habitats. Uh, this is important, incidentally, not because it's not nice to kill the spotted owl, but because we know now, again from the system sciences, that complex systems depend on their internal complexity for their long-term viability. It's, it's exactly that complexity that makes them work, that makes them uh, robust, that makes them able to reconfigure themselves again and again as the context uh, 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 change. Uh, sorry, we have the, uh, the social domain, which provides the, uh, the, the, the framework for social interactions. And finally, least, uh, last but not least, the spiritual, the spiritual domain, the value domain. What is it that we are, <laughs> that we are <laughs> doing for? What is the purpose of our existence? and our activities. It's an interesting thing here because the first, the first four domains are basically uh, uh, relate to techniques, to how we do things. And the spiritual domain that is added here uh, asks the question, why are you doing it in the first place? What is your purpose in life? What is it that drives you? Uh, not only individually, but as a society, as, a, as, a, as humanity, as, as a whole. Uh, it's interesting also, a small anecdote, uh, when I was working on this, I was still doing a lot of work uh, uh, at, at some of those institutions that I referred to earlier, and I would share my kind of sketches with some colleagues. And uh, for a while, I thought that I had it all under control with defining those four first domains. Uh, and I always felt that there was something missing until I realized that it's that spiritual dimension that was missing. But most people that I talked to said, don't even say that word, because if you want uh, heads of states or heads of corporation to take you seriously, you cannot talk about spirituality. And I did have uh, in those days still enough confidence, I guess, and I would put it in or out depending on the, on, on the audience. But obviously, this is the linchpin. This is the center of gravity that holds the rest uh, uh, together. So it in relation to each one of those domains, there's a principle that is expressed. 
And those uh, uh, principles are basically imperative. They, they don't tell you what not to do. They tell you what you have to do if you want to, uh, to have that domain structured in the right way. And as I said, we, we, it, it's getting a little heavy to get into those, but there are five principles that relates, one re relates to each one of those uh, domains. And the important idea is that those have to be always integrated. No matter what is the issue that you looked at, you have to integrate all those five domains in what you're doing. Otherwise, you're dealing only partially with things and you're not going to bring about a holistic change. I mean, you cannot only be spiritual, you also need the right technology. Uh, you, if you only deal with technology without the value guidance, you end up with uh, uh, focusing, as we do, on uh, putting all the efforts in, in weaponry and weapons of mass destruction and ever more incredible technologies that would really make the, the world a, 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 a paradise. And those principles is what we try to demonstrate the application of those principles in the projects that we uh, do at the lab. I, I was just going to interrupt you and, and ask you to, I, I, know, I know that um, you've shared um, with this group in particular a bit about Project Wadi Atir, but my understanding of Wadi Atir, it, it, it is a, an, you know, a, a, an embodiment of this um, premise that, you know, if you can apply um, these principles to both your kind of um, vision for, for a project, but also make sure that they get integrated into how you, how you uh, move forward, that it will be successful. It is, um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I, I, that seems an obvious point, but I. I yeah, I, I think it's a, the, the project Wadiatir that we launched almost, uh, it's almost over 12 years now. Actually, that was the first project of the lab. It's really the flagship project that we have. And it was very important to demonstrate the application uh, of those principles in a real life situation, because otherwise it's an abstract talk, if you like. Uh, so, uh, at Project Wadiatir, we tried to produce some uh, uh, radical innovations in relation to uh, those domains that, it, 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 that I talked about earlier. And the important thing to, uh, to say in that uh, regard is that there are many, many beautiful, excellent projects around the world today that come under the sustainability umbrella. But if you look at them closely, you'll realize that they tend to be sector or issue specific. So there are programs about uh, water or project about uh, energy or projects about community or projects about uh, children or project about education or project about women. Uh, and so the focus uh, in spite of beautiful attempts is very narrow. And part of the claim that I mentioned earlier that you have to integrate all those dimensions in every uh, attempt that you're trying to uh, work on or resolve. So with Project Wadiatir, uh, we tried to uh, produce and demonstrate um, some really radical demonstra uh, uh, innovations that I'll talk about. Remember that transformation thing, really transformative elements 
that relate broadly to those five dimensions that I talked about. So this is a project with a Bedouin population, uh, a Bedouin community. In the, most of you are familiar with the map of Israel. Uh, it takes place in the desert, that, that elongated triangle in the south of the country. The red circle is basically the area where most of the Bedouin community uh, resides. There are about 250. Uh, there are many outside of that circle, but many are, uh, most are in. Uh, of this 200, and that area, as you can see, is, is very densely used now with a few Israeli towns, many Bedouin towns, a lot of Bedouin villages, industrial areas, all kinds of competition on the use of resources. And we are somewhere at the middle of that, uh, of that area. Uh, this is basically a, 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 a satellite, a, a satellite picture of the site that we got from the government, about 100 acres, this uh, this rectangle that you have here, uh, about 100 acres. Uh, this is the, Wadi is the Arabic word for ravine, and this is the uh, Atir ravine. Uh, and as you can see, this is complete uh, moonscape. It's a it's a real uh, it, it's a real piece of desert with nothing growing or nothing happening uh, uh, on it. And in that area, and in doing that project, is where, as I mentioned, we tried to innovate in a number of dimensions simultaneously. The first was on the community level, and here we tried to do a number of things uh, which were quite unprecedented. The Bedouins, as you know, are tribal, and many of the tribes and clans and families are, are, are really not collaborating very well. In fact, many of them are in perpetual uh, uh, conflict. And we said we want this project not to be in, uh, related to one village or one family or one clan or one tribe, but to really reflect the cross-section of the Bedouin community at large. And we were quite successful with that. The project team now involved people from different villages and different families and different things. Uh, the other innovation there, we, we, we are building this as a cooperative venture, which is really not the way uh, the tribal organization usually works. And probably the most radical of all those innovation uh, has to do with the participation of women uh, with men from the beginning. We, uh, we said that we'd like women to be part of the team and work together with men and even have a, a, a position of uh, responsibility, management responsibility, with men working under them. This is entirely unprecedented. If you know that culture, there's really no occasions where men and women come together, uh, not even in weddings, for example, that you'll have complete segregation of uh, the, the genders. So we were quite successful with that, although it was one of the more difficult things that we had to do. Uh, here you see different scenes of, uh, of uh, uh, we, we spent about a year and a half, two years when we started uh, discussing the project in, in different contexts with different people in order to get the support of the community at large and to get the buy-in and to get people who declare that they want to be part of that. And the project team today is about 40, 30, 40 people. Half of them are, uh, are women, which is, a, I, I think, is one of the tremendous achievements that we have here. And not only that, three years ago, we appointed this young woman that you see here in the, in the yellow as a CEO of this project. And that's a considerable project today. It's about the $15 million undertaking. 
and she's running it beautifully. This is one of the things, like many others, that I was told you can never do it. You can never put a woman on top of men and uh, all of those kind of things. But uh, her impact has been fantastic uh, and, and reinforced, in my view, uh, the, the notion that we don't have uh, in any, any, not only with the Bedouin community, but everywhere around the world, we don't have enough uh, female energy in position of authority. Uh, uh, one of the things that before her <laughs> advent, uh, the, the guys who were kind of managers of department in the project were uh, involved of constantly batting horns like young <laughs> goats, uh, you, uh, always fighting, uh, never cooperating. And since she came in, she was able to install more of a family uh, kind of uh, a spirit. And, and uh, things are very different the way they are uh, there. The other very important uh, areas of innovations was in the economic uh, uh, level, where we said we are not interested in creating uh, kind of job opportunities, which is the approach to deal with uh, marginal communities like this, give them some little uh, uh, marginal education and then some, uh, I don't know, uh, 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 dishwashing jobs and so forth. You said we want to really put huge investment in capacity building and create a group of entrepreneurs that will launch their own businesses and run it and follow rise with it. And those businesses would be based on the Bedouin tradition and knowledge and so forth, but there will be real economic uh, 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 developments, if you like. And what we've done, ended up doing here is create, uh, putting together a beautiful uh, mixed herds of goats and sheep. It's a dairy farm. Uh, we have one of the best dairy, uh, I mean, milking facility in the country, probably the most modern, a, a great uh, uh, dairy. And we produce these fantastic products. Whenever you come visit, uh, you won't believe it. I mean, this is the best yogurt you ever tested some a whole range of uh, cheeses and so forth. And they are sold now quite successfully uh, in the whole area, both in the Bedouin community and out. Another function, an economic function that is very interesting, the desert is home to a very large number of extremely potent medicinal plants, uh, most of which are not known yet to science. And these have been used by Bedouin healers for centuries. I mean, this was the healthcare system. There was no hospitals to go to uh, uh, when you were nomading in the desert. And this is Ali al-Hawashli that you see here, who is one of the, uh, is in the part of the project team. And he is a Bedouin healer who devoted his life to the Bedouin knowledge about medicinal plants. So we've been spending about four or five years in experimenting uh, with domesticating those plants. And today, as you can see on the pictures on the bottom right, uh, uh, we start them in, in these greenhouses and then transfer them to the, uh, and we have about 12 acres now uh, of growing this super quality, high level, potent uh, uh, plant that we use for all kinds of health related product, uh, different soaps and, uh, and teas and, and, and uh, skin stuff and scalp stuff and so forth. Uh, and then the next fun, a, a function that is an interesting one, it's a woman-led project. Some of the Bedouin families still keep uh, seeds of authentic local vegetables. These are simple things like tomatoes and cucumbers and so forth. They are extremely nutritious. They're, they're really packed with good stuff. They are desert hardy. They can do without a lot of water and high salinity. 
and as I said, they are really healthy for you, but nobody uses them anymore uh, because people buy those uh, uh, genetically engineered tomatoes in the supermarkets uh, that have no nothing like the nutritional values. So this is a project where we are working. We create a seed bank to preserve this genetic material and then work with women to instruct them about how to deal with seeds, how to preserve seeds, how to create gardens with the idea that they will then work with women in household to return those uh, nutritional uh, vegetables to household uh, use. We have our own apiary. Uh, remember all these great medicinal plants with all the flowering. So we have a very nice production of honey. Uh, and again, very high quality honey. And we planted a, a, a nice olive grove uh, that produces uh, uh, really good olive oil. Uh, as well. So this is kind of the economic uh, stuff that I mentioned. We have now a, a shop on site, as you can see on the right, but also a great deal of sales in all kinds of farmers markets and so forth. The shop incidentally uh, came into being uh, in, in February, the end of February, had a few glorious two weeks and then had to close because of COVID, but it's now back in business uh, and is doing well. So again, the idea was to create a group of entrepreneurs that will uh, control and manage their own uh, income and productive activities. Uh, education has been at the heart of it. We created a visitor center that uh, functions on three levels, uh, the ecosystem as an uh, ecotourism destination, as a, as a center for uh, providing technical support to outlying villages, and as a school. So at the moment, it's actually in Arguka. Oh, I wanted to show you that this is a picture that I just took two weeks ago. Uh, this is how the, the visitor center looked. I was there a couple of weeks ago, and it, it's really a, a far cry from what it was when we started. Uh, but we have, as I said, an educational school there. We have a program with the Ministry of Education, which before COVID again, we were seeing uh, 1,200 students every week, 1,200 students a week. It died during last year, but it's coming back together now uh, uh, with vengeance. And these kids spend a lot of time on the site. They learn about the principles, if you like, uh, about the environment, about how to deal with. The other thing, of course, is that ecotourism destination, the project has attracted tremendous amount of visitors uh, from all over the world, in, uh, not just Israel, but really everywhere including some major, uh, how do you call it, celebrities. We had the two former presidents of the country, the, the head of the OECD, uh, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, and many, many others. Uh, I think the project kind of hit a nerve that people were interested in, in learning and knowing about. Uh, the next thing that uh, to talk about is that the whole area is kind of supported by an infrastructure of green technologies. Uh, basically trying to connect, don't worry about the complexity of this diagram, but the idea is turning waste into resource, connecting all the functions in a way that the output or the byproduct of one will become an input to another. Uh, at the heart, we are working, this is still not operating, of a very interesting uh, uh, hybrid solar, wind, and storage system that will take care of the energy needs thermal and electrical energy needs of the time. Uh, we create the biogas 
All the irrigation is drip irrigation. We work with Netafim, uh, a, a major, a, a, a local uh, uh, company that became the world leader in drip irrigation. Uh, we create our own compost and we take all the wastewater through a system of recreated wetlands uh, to get to purify the water so they, they can use for irrigation uh, on, on their site. And then last but not least is that whole ecosystem restoration. You remember the site, I showed you the picture earlier, which is uh, like this, uh, and we went around transforming it. Now, two things to say about this. One is this area of the Northern Negev is basically, is, is not natural desert as exists further south. This is typical to desertification. This is man-made desert. Uh, 2,000 years ago in Byzantic time, uh, they used to import wheat from here to Rome. But hundreds of years of uh, mismanagement, of uh, 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 overgrazing and, uh, and uh, monocultures really depleted the soil of organic matter. So it's, it, it lost its fertility completely. The other thing is the soil here is called less has this quality that when it rains, even the little rain that we have here uh, under 150 millimeters a year, the top hardens like concrete and water doesn't seep into the ground, but creates this pattern of erosion of small ravine feeding into larger ravines and into ever larger ravine with creating that phenomena of uh, in that part of the world where you have rain in one place, like here, for example, and then a few hours later, no water stays in the place. But a few hours later, you get major flash floods that can be quite dangerous somewhere else. So when we started, this is how the site looked. And this is the top typical kind of erosion pattern that, uh, you, uh, that I mentioned. And we went about changing that. Uh, the idea was to harvest rainwater, to keep the water in place, uh, and to do massive planting. Uh, Israel is known for forestry, but most of the large forests that are done in the country uh, are basically monoforests. They are either eucalyptuses or, or, or pines. And we set up to create a complex ecosystem, if you like. So we chose about 17 different species of, uh, uh, of appropriate plants and shrubs and so forth. We grew them in, in uh, greenhouses for five or six years. And meanwhile, we created this pattern of low impact, low earth mounds. I say low impact, not using heavy equipment that will disturb all the microorganisms on the top uh, uh, soil uh, to stop the runoff of water. And in those areas is where we planted, we moved all the things from the, uh, from the, from the uh, greenhouses. Uh, to my surprise, maybe three or four did not take on all the other did. And for the first nine months to a year, we used drip irrigation to irrigate them. But then we stopped that to move to water. And this is in uh, 2013, after the rains. And you can see how that system accumulates large num large amount of water on site. If you look at the horizon all around, you won't see any uh, standing water like this. So this is the first time ever that water actually stays on the site, and it's tremendous amount of water, even with the little rain that you get during during uh, uh, January and end of December, January and February. And the trees 
everything reacted right away. This is a few months later. Uh, you could really see the vitality in what we're trying to demonstrate is that that, few, that that time of filling this with water is enough to keep that ecosystem alive for the year. Uh, we also planted various kinds of uh, uh, edibles to demonstrate the agroforestry potential, like the pomegranate, uh, figs, obviously the olives, some citruses, but they are not doing very well. Uh, and what happened next was amazing. This is grass that is two meters high, about nine months after the trees uh, were stabilizing. What happened here is that uh, seeds that float in the air suddenly, anyway, suddenly we didn't do anything here. No, no seeding, nothing. So this is nature doing its own thing. Seeds now find they are protected from ultraviolet uh, radiation of the sun. There's nutrition from the trees and moisture in the soil, and all this thing begins to uh, to grow. And this is within a year after that thing. This happened so fast that it's quite amazing. And as I said, it's there's no heroic effort here other than letting nature do itself without uh, interruption. One of the things that I was interested in is to demonstrate uh, the, the kind of biodiversity impact. This is a site that had no life in it, as you remember. Maybe a couple of scorpions and an occasional raven if there was a dead animal. And what happened next, and I thought that that is an effort that will take generations. Uh, and what happened next was an almost absolute miracle. Uh, the, with the change of the flora on the on the ground, so to speak, you have all these flowers beginning to emerge every spring. And what follows the flowers? All these cross-pollinating bugs. Again, we didn't bring them. We didn't invite them. You have flowers, you get bugs. And what follow the bugs? The birds. All kinds of birds that no one ever saw in that area. Uh, we, th these guys come in the winter to pick up tadpoles in those uh, water ponds. Uh, many endangered, really endangered species. Uh, we counted about 56 different species of birds now who come to visit the site. Uh, many actually nest there and grow their young. And many are birds, this is very interesting, that birds that are migrating from Europe to Africa and back, and they use the site as a, a layway facility to stay for a few weeks and rest and feed and then uh, go on. And of course, after the birds, some very rare ones, you started getting life uh, in, 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 in general. Uh, this guy, I don't know how they got there. Turtles are really an endangered species in the country, but there's a turtle suddenly there. Even uh, toads, which are certainly not a desert animal. Uh, larger mammals like rabbits, which of course are followed right away with uh, foxes. Uh, so we have a whole family of foxes there as well. The predators after the life. And again, I want to emphasize that all of this happens by itself if you provide the right context, the right protected uh, context to it. And this is how the site looks today, uh, a complete uh, transformation. Remember the second order transformations, so a bit of Switzerland kind of thing, typical in the spring, which of course allows us to get 
oh, this is again this year, this winter, showing that the working of that uh, collecting uh, of rainwater in the area. Uh, and this, of course, is the, to the great delight of the animal who can go out to pasture freely and feed of the myriad plants and, and shrubs and so forth, uh, which, of course, improve their life, uh, their well-being, their health, and, of course, the product. Mo not only more milk, but much better quality of milk. Some of the fodder we actually seed. A lot of it is wild, but the animals are happy. And just to end, I have, uh, I end up with the duck that you saw before, uh, because to me, this became like a mascot, if you like, of this project. Uh, uh, since when I started with that, all I heard was that this is impossible. It's a pipe dream. It will never happen. You can't do it. Da, 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 da. It's as impossible as the duck that now swims every winter at Project Quadratier. I just wanted to add uh, one thing that in addition to uh, Project Wadiatir, we, we, uh, we are dealing with a few other locations that I mentioned before. Uh, we are just starting now after again a, a, a slowdown due to COVID in Costa Rica with a, a very interesting project with the community of Nicaraguan uh, kind of illegal migrants, if you like, uh, to try and create a complete, we actually call it the Proyecto Transición, Project Transition, to demonstrate a, an approach that will completely transform uh, the life of that community, not only the uh, infrastructure and the economy, but their, their legal status and everything else. Uh, with Wadia Tir, uh, we, we, are, we are just beginning to work with a very interesting group of Maasais in Kenya, uh, near the Amboseli area, where they, it's a it's a community that owns a huge tract of land, or Gulului uh, Ranch, it's called. It's uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of hectares, uh, and I think it's a fantastic opportunity to uh, showcase a scale up if the methods that we used here. Uh, we are starting something new in Bhutan and so forth, and I, I hope that in 10 years. If we get the right resources and uh, are able to continue, that we'll be able to cover all the different biomes of the planet, including uh, uh, urban ecology, which is, of course, very uh, important. And at the same time, we have a number of educational programs uh, that are quite uh, powerful and, and uh, popular. This was such a wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. Um, I have two questions for the negative project. So from the time that you moved the earth until it was transformed, how long did that take? And what was the price per acre or per, uh, you know, hectare or whatever? Okay. Uh, this was a very expensive project as a whole, but the actual cost of the ecosystem transformation uh, that you are alluded to was minimal. I, I think maybe we spent there, I don't know, maybe $300,000. And the results were were really obvious within three years. This is uh, what I said that, you, you know, if, if you do things right uh, and, 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 uh, and you use the dynamic creativity of nature itself, it does it for you. It's like judo. You don't have to 
overdo things as we have been doing with the industrial agriculture that, yes, produced a sudden uh, increase in yields, but with a huge cost, not only the cost of doing it, but then the cost of uh, poisoning the land and poisoning the food and, and all the rest. So this is actually was a relatively low cost uh, and, and, and very powerful. Thank you. That was exceptional. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, could you give us an idea of how many people were involved in this area? Um, how many, just something about the economic opportunity that was created, the uh, any changes in education, health, uh, that just a, some metrics. And second question would be, um, you know, the, the replication opportunities that you see. Um, are there, do you see in the next, 10 years, 15 years, that the replication can be scaled from the different biomes and how, that, how you see that playing out? So in, in, within the Bedouin community, uh, uh, it, it's interesting. You, you, you have to think about the impact on number of peoples in a kind of a, 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 a number of circles. The first and most intimate uh, is the people who are involved directly with the project. The, the, and this is a relatively small number. Uh, it is uh, about 40 families maybe involved here. Uh, they have been deriving their income from the project that was supported largely with philanthropy until now. Uh, the income has been growing very nicely, and we hope in two, three years to kind of break even, uh, if you like. Uh, but the further circles have been a very large number of contractors. And we usually try to stay within the community for all the contract work, the buildings, the fences, the, all, all of those kind of things. So this is a much larger uh, uh, group with a much larger uh, uh, capital investment. Uh, and then, of course, the, the, on the education thing, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we've been seeing regularly uh, about over a thousand school kids every week. Uh, so you've got a, a very large number that are exposed to all this way of thinking, the way of doing, and so forth. But more than all of those, this project has become a symbol to the community at large, even those who are not involved, of the fact that, yes, in the Bedouin community, you don't have only guys who murder and kill each other, uh, there's not only criminals, there, there is a possibility and the capacity and the creativity to do something positive. And even more interesting, this is something that, uh, you know, kind of in, in the, in the uh, um, wildest of my dreams, I kind of had an inkling. But I wanted this project to perhaps have a, a impact on the whole relationship between government and the the Israeli government and the Bedouin community, which is a, 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 a relationship that is very problematic in many ways. What is happening now, it's absolutely fascinating, uh, and especially since the new government is in place. I don't know if you follow the Israeli politics or something, but the new government uh, has uh, actually uh, uh, put down, put a, 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 a budget that the country didn't have for three and a half years now. Uh, and in that budget, they have 
uh, allocated a, a very, very significant amount for investment in the Arab sector, including the Bedouins in the Negev. So suddenly this project has become, uh, the, everyone who is interested is bringing a top government official to see it as an example of what can be achieved. So uh, Lapid, for example, who is the foreign minister now and is going to be the next prime minister, if everything goes well in a year or so, was already at the project. Uh, uh, Mansour Abbas, who is the head of the Arab country and already there, I actually met with him two weeks ago when I was in Israel, uh, because he's in charge of all the funds that will go there. And we are trying to get them to allocate, uh, to recognize really formally, to recognize Wadiatir as a national asset and therefore allocate resources to its next level of development. So it's had a very wide uh, uh, kind of impact that way. Uh, with respect to scale up, it's a, it's a, it's only, it, it's a, it's a secret that is uh, waiting to happen because the approach is there, the principles are there, the way to do it is there, the experience is there, and the need is there. So we tried to get um, a larger area in the Negev to demonstrate that. All, all the northern Negev can be turned into a park <laughs> easily and to a productive agricultural area if you use it, if you do it correctly, but we've not been successful yet. Uh, uh, and we are also, as I mentioned earlier, trying to do a major scale up in Kenya, but it, this is just taking the first steps uh, and we'll see where it goes. Bill, would you have a question? Yes, uh, it's just amazing what you've done. It's like you took the most difficult possible conditions, including the social, that is, with having women uh, turning that around and all. So it's just a miracle how you how the uh, different animals in nature came out of nowhere. It seems like, um, but if this is this is a cooperative, and what I'm trying to get at is uh, um, cooperation is is a way of doing it rather than perhaps a for profit model. And um, you know, talking earlier about the destruction of um, our environment, that is, we're using up much more than we can possibly, than the planet will support. And the planet can't support, um, if I may say, capitalism as we know it, as as we're doing it. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Uh, kind of, we're kind of panning way back in the picture of, of sustainability. Um, let, let me uh, uh, make a remark first about the, what you were saying, which I appreciate that that was the most difficult kind of condition. This was actually deliberate. Remember, this is when we just launched the lab. And I came across that issue of the Bedouins by, quite by chance on a visit to Israel. Not, the details are not very important, but I immediately realized that here is an opportunity to do a project. And because the conditions are so impossible, if we succeed, it will really give credence to the whole effort with the lab and the principles and everything else. And that's why I really uh, put myself 10 years into seeing that it happens and demonstrates what the intention was. With respect to the destruction, yes, of course. I mean, this was the point of what I was talking about earlier, that it's clear that all the underlying machinery of our current civilization 
is producing the state that we are in, that unsustainable state. And in order to change that, you cannot just have a list of goals. You can have as many goals until tomorrow or day after tomorrow. But if you don't, if you are unable to actually restructure the very heart of our culture, our civilization, our whatever, you're going to get the same results again and again. Now, it's true that there's more and more awareness, more and more people are conscious of the fact uh, there's more discussion about climate change and so forth, but we have really haven't touched yet the main engines. And actually, the, the thing about climate change is a fantastic example to that. In climate change and the conventions about climate change, the agreement for climate change, people have been arguing, uh, people, nations, have been arguing, in spite of scientific evidence that was always there, have been arguing for the last 30 years. And what they've been arguing about and fighting about levels of emissions, whether to reduce emissions by 3% or 5% or whatever. This is not where the problem is. It's not emissions. It's what produces emissions. Right. You have to go after the oil and gas industry and create a planetary effort that in 10 years will get us out of fossil fuels and into renewables. Right. But that's not what the effort is focusing on. And uh, there, there is another element to it, which is very interesting. It's precisely the current uh, system, <laughs> if you like, which is always the case, that stands in the way of what needs to be done. Because you are using an accounting system that tells you you cannot afford to do this transformation because it will cost too much. It will cost too much, but you're not comparing apples to apples here. Mm -hmm. Right, you're comparing the current profits from oil right. to without taking into account all the costs of climate change, for example, right. and right. other things. So th this really requires a major, major. It, it's an you know I think humanity has gone through major transformation in the past, such as from uh, 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 nomads and gatherers into the agricultural and then the urban. And then the industrial revolution, I think we are in the cusp of another such revolution mm -hmm. uh, with all the usual symptoms that mm -hmm. change creates resistance mm -hmm. to that change and so forth. Uh, the only difference is in the past, we really had uh, sometimes thousands, sometimes hundreds of years to adapt. Mm -hmm. And now everything that we hear from the scientific community is that the window of opportunity is much shorter. Yes. Uh, so it's a much more critical issue of whether humanity will be able to get its act together in the next decade or so right. and, and, and get to the real stuff rather than. Uh, and you can see, again, uh, uh, it it's can be uh, really despairing. You, you, you have this big meeting in Glasgow. All the countries are there. <laughs> and what do they end up with? Agreeing to refer to fossil fuels in their declaration, agreeing to put the word in. Mm. I mean, this is uh, nowhere to go about things. Well, right. So it means a massive education program, you know, and there's no, the media aren't prepared to do that, you know. That's, you know, everything that we've done in the lab, if you like, is like a metaphor. I, I know that we are not going to change the world. But what I wanted to do is to touch on the thing that needs change and demonstrate. And with the educational, why we do education program, 
uh, mm-hmm. to demonstrate that you need even to education take a different uh, a, a different approach. Uh, and uh, but the programs that we have uh, they touch a few ten students in a year, mm-hmm. twenty or something. That's not uh, the way to do it. But and and the the education system itself is part of the culprit because the uh, the academic structure around the world is is that specialization that focusing on on less and less more and more right. uh, uh, is exactly what keeps us in trouble because it it makes it impossible for people to collaborate yes and the emphasis is on uh, again on how to become very successful in the current structures that are exactly the ones you want to change Right. So the best and brightest go to Harvard Business School to end up in <laughs> whatever. So every school should have an education program, uh, uh, you know, for the young people about the environment, like and demonstration and showing what the children did in, in your project, you know. And it should be a different kind of education. It should yes. be more experiential education. Right. Uh, and, and kids are ready for that. I can I can tell you that. I can see mm-hmm. we have one program where we, which is a summer session basically. It's designed for uh, for uh, a, a master's level uh, mm-hmm. kids from all disciplines uh, who want to come for three or four weeks and get a deeper immersion to understand uh, really how how to educate the next generation of leaders. Uh, and uh, I, I can see the kids, the, the demand for the project, we, we've done three such sessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we get uh, the next kind of level of uh, funding, we'll do the next one next summer. Um, and the, to give you an example, uh, the, the last one, we did two in Costa Rica, one we did in Israel two years ago before COVID. And for 20 places, we had 270 applications from all around the world. Uh, and it was difficult to choose because all those kids were just super, super bright, super accomplished, super everything. They could go into anyone. They can become investment bankers at Goldman Sachs tomorrow. But they don't want to follow the conventional route of career. They really feel deep inside. They want to do something for the planet, they understand that there are all those issues and they're looking for the tools. So I think there is a, a, a potential for a great revolution in education, not just potential, but need for a great potential. Uh, uh, well, thank you for being such an inspiring pioneer. Thank you for, <laughs> for the, your kind words. <laughs>